Hello, and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, so in this episode, I'll be looking at chapters 4, 5, and 6 of At the Mountains of Madness. This is part 2 of 4 of my overall review of this, this book. We can call it a book. It's a... Uh, it's a short novel, but it's novel length, and, and it's the only novel length uh, work that Lovecraft published during his lifetime. He, of course, wrote a couple others, but this is the longest thing he published in his lifetime. Uh, it was written uh, in the winter of, of, of 1931, February uh, and March, and it was not published until 1936, so not until the last year of his life did he see this book in print. Uh, it was published in Astounding. Uh, not Weird Tales, which was the normal destination of most of his stories. It was published serially as well in three parts. Um, clearly, I should have done three episodes corresponding with how the story was broken up, but um, but I think four will be fine. It'll give us a little bit more time to meditate, I guess, on some of what this story is trying to say. Um, <clears throat> now, one thing I think that is going on here is so many of Lovecraft's stories start with uh, kind of a mystery and investigation, and then there's some kind of cover-up at the end. I think this is most clearly seen in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, but you also see it maybe in Lurking Fear, um, to a lesser degree in Rats on the Wall, um, and Dunwich Horror has a bit of this too. Um, but in this story, you start with uh, you start with the cover-up. You start, the first three chapters, what we looked at in the last episode, basically is the official report, right? And, you know... In a way, I think a lot of people say this is like the pinnacle of Lovecraft's works. It's like the high point of his works. And I don't know. It's not my favorite, but it is an achievement. But it's a bit long, right? It's very, very detailed. The text is very, very dense. But there are long passages where it doesn't seem that much is happening, right? It's just these very, very detailed descriptions. Um, you know, compare this to The Unnameable, right? Not long before this, he wrote a story called The Unnameable, which is just about how thing the horrible can't be described and then in this story Lovecraft spends like three four pages describing the mountains or the mirages uh, that they see on their trip or the, the long detailed descriptions but you know based on kind of biological science of the elder things bodies the long descriptions of the murals we'll see in a in, in the next episode maybe a little bit in this episode I, I forget exactly when they show up um, but it's it's very, very a different style, right? And it does get a little tedious, I think. It's, it's not a story I like coming back to, to be honest. Um, it's, you know, I really love Shadow of Innsmouth, which maybe is also um, suffers from the, the kind of riches of the detail, but there's so much world building going on in that one, which I, th I, I rather enjoy. There's world building here too, but it's so meticulously drawn out, right? Uh, in, in it's, and it's hidden in a lot of other material, right? Especially the first three chapters. They can be very, very tedious, I think, for readers. Um, but things kind of pick up with chapter four. In chapter four, we're told um, everything I've just said is the official report. Now we're going to tell you what really happened. And what really happened is, is what's going to cover chapters four through 12, right? So this is, again, the context of all this is Dyer, our narrator, who's not... I think he's just called Dyer in the, uh, just mentioned as Dyer in the story. I think his first name was William, as talked about in, I think, Shadow Over Time, because he shows up again. Um, but 
he survives this and he was trying to warn against a future expedition because of what has been discovered new life you know certainly um has encouraged other expeditions to antarctica and dyer is trying to convince them not to go to just kind of close the door on it to to proceed with the cover you know and he's in a sense trying to proceed with the cover-up of it but to do this he has to give a very very detailed report of what's there right which is a bit of a it's an irony right it's he's not he's not able to be as complete as as like Willett is in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, uh, who's able to actually cover up completely Joseph Kerwin's crime and what happened to Charles Dexter Ward and, and allow the world to move on. That's not possible in this case because too much has already been left out of, got, you know, the cat's out of the bag as far as Antarctica. So the only way he can deter people is by revealing the details, right? Now, we sense this is not going to work, um, but why... This warning, he's so insistent on this warning. Why does he keep calling these mountains of madness? That is what is revealed in chapters 4 through 12 in, again, very, very excruciating detail. Right? And I think, again, this can turn off some readers. It's, and it's by far not my favorite of his stories. I appreciate the achievement here, but it's, you know, even now, even these four episodes has been kind of a drag for me to, to just get up the will to, to do these. Personally, I'm really excited to get into Shadow over Innsmouth. All right. Uh, anyways, chapter four is set at Lake's camp. So uh, basically what happened in the first three chapters is Lake, one of the other major researchers, he went uh, into the mountains in Antarctica to do some core samples. And there he finds some life that seems to be uh, oddly placed in the ge ge geological timeline of species. And then he finds the body of the elder thing, frozen underground, and he starts to dissect it, and he gets a very detailed report of that. But then these reports just stop. So the commu radio communication ends, and there's no physical contact, even though they have like four planes, maybe three planes, because uh, our narrator has one of the planes. Um, so it's, it's odd that the, the, the basically all communication just ends. At the very least, they'd be able to send someone, so Dyer figures something's up with them so he puts together a new expedition to go to lakes camp um and much of the chapter three is the is flying to lakes camp in this airplane and it's quite uh this is where he starts to see the mirages um which seem to be just regular arctic mirages but as we learn in a later chapter they seem to be reflections of the mountains of madness and, and something horrific about them um yeah i think one thing that's really amazing about this story is the interplay of, of horror and curiosity and science and um i think it's always been in the backdrop of lovecraft's work like even in like um the the warren story right what's it called again the statement of randolph carter right where this the scientist can't stop himself from going where he probably should, perhaps shouldn't go and that's an old theme but it's not ever explored in such deep psychological depth as it is in this story. So I think that's one important achievement of this story is he really tries to explain why we can't put down the Necronomicon once we open it or why we can't stop ourselves from going down the cave, right? Part of it is the need to, to answer questions about what has happened to them in the short term, but also this deeper curiosity and that fighting between the curiosity and horror runs throughout much of the, the story. 
And we start to really feel that with these mirages that we see in chapter three. But anyways, chapter four begins. They get to Lake's camp and they find it a whore, right? Uh, they find much of, most of the people um, killed. And they see bodies. And they see bodies in various states of, of distress. One is desiccated, for instance. And the dogs are all dead, too. Now, I don't remember the exact order of events. It doesn't really matter. But there's two people, a, a guy named Gendry and a, one dog that's not accounted for in the bodies. Um, and there's also some, like, the body of the elder thing that was being dissected is, is gone. So there's no physical evidence of the elder thing, which I think is important for the, you know, you know, both to inspire another expedition to Antarctica to answer certain questions and, uh, you know, to give Dyer's, make it more necessary that Dyer kind of details what's what happened in Antarctica, kind of justifying the whole story. So that's missing. Uh, most of the camp is dead and, and there's just these two, two people that are not accounted for, right? We won't call them survivors yet. They're just not accounted for. And in fact, uh, Dyer's team, which I think it's like 10 people, it's most of the rest of the camp goes there, um, is, thinks that basically this, this guy went nuts and killed everyone, right? That's the most logical explanation. Well, I guess they were actually missing two dogs and two men, but they, they had found one man and one dog. So there's just the missing Gendry and, and the one dog. Um, now, what's really cool about this is we, in chapter two, I think it's chapter two, yeah, when they dissect the elder thing, we were told, we were, we're given this window into the curiosity of man towards these creatures and the scientific process of trying to understand them. And here it seems that it's almost been turned on its head where the elder things, because that's, you know, apparently what happened, surviving elder things that are still living here, you know, basically liberated their their dead friend and killed off the rest of the camp but they, before doing that they actually seem to experiment a little bit and the elder things themselves are are even though they're survivors of a long dead civilization and under a considerable amount of distress themselves um because of the shoggoth of course or the shoggoths that that still dwell in the city of the elder things they're still they still have this kind of curiosity they're still scientifically minded as well um Let's listen to this. Uh, it was not as Lake had left it, for the covered parts of the primal monstrosity had been removed from the improvised tables. Indeed, we all realized that one of the six imperfect and insanely bearing things we had found, the one with the trace of the peculiar hateful order, must represent the collected sections of the entity which Lake had tried to analyze. On and around the laboratory table were strewn other things, and it did not take long for us to guess that those things were the carefully, though oddly and inexpertly dissected parts of one man and one dog. I shall spare the feelings of survivors by omitting mention of the man's identity. Lake's anatomical instruments were gone, but there was evidence of their careful cleansing. The ghastly stove was also gone, though around it we found a curious litter of matches. We buried the human parts beside the other ten men and the canine parts with the other thirty-five dogs. Concerning the bizarre smudges on the laboratory table, and on the jumble of roughly handled illustrated books scattered near it, it was, we, were too we were too much bewildered to speculate, end quote. So you don't really know it in your first reading, but, you know, the, the elder things, the ETs, they're, they're not really, I guess they're, they're actually more indigenous to Earth than humans. 
are themselves explorers and curious and, and scientists. It's a great little uh, a subplot here because, you know, as has often been said, Lovecraft seems to have some affinity for the elder things because them as their culture, their civilization is something that he seems to be somewhat attracted to for whatever reasons, right? That's part of the analysis of this story is, is how, what to make of the elder things and their slaves, the Shagas, and their interplay. And what does that mean for understanding Lovecraft's views about civilization, right? This is actually, uh, along with the mound, it's really his most in-depth look at a culture uh, and a civilization, which gives us a chance to think about the things he writes about in his letters, which is about often about rising and falling civilizations. So anyways, with this missing man and this missing dog, Dyer decides to go with Danford, which is this, like, he's a graduate student. He's one of the assistants, one of the students they took on this expedition to Antarctica, decide to take one of the planes into the mountains. Uh, they find a path. They use uh, one of the other members of the expedition's notes to find the, the most likely path into the mountains because that's where they think this guy went uh, with this dog. And I think he takes a sled and some equipment. At least that's how it appears to be. So they're going to go into the mountains to try to track him down and, and follow him. Now this uh, voyage, this well, voyage is the wrong term, I guess. This this trip they take into the mountains is is kind of reminiscent of the trip to Lakes Camp, where they experience the mirages and ponder the boundaries between the real and the unreal, and and the mysterious and the, like the horror of the other the horror of an outworldly experience or, or, or vision or imagery. Um, and that happens again, too, where they see these things and there's kind of parallels to, you know, other geographies and geologies, but it's still somehow kind of, there's something unearthly about, the, about what they see. And this gives them this sense of kind of horror and mystery and, and a little bit of terror, right? But that isn't, it's not enough to, to prevent their curiosity. So Lovecraft writes, Our sensations of tense expectation as we prepare to round the crest and peer out over an untrodden world can hardly be described on paper, even though we had no cause to think the regions beyond the range essentially different from those already seen and traversed. The touch of evil mystery in those barrier mountains and in the beckoning seas of opalescent sky gl glimpsed betwixt their summits was a highly subtle and attenuated matter not to be explained in literal words. Rather, it was an affair of vague psychological symbolism and aesthetic association, a thing mixed up with the exotic poetry and paintings and with archaic myths lurking and shunned in shunned and forbidden volumes. End quote. And I don't think this is the first time we, we see mention of of Lovecraft's broader mythos here. Um, certainly it was something that I think Lake in his reports talked about. He com compared these to the Migos and Wilmarth's uh, discoveries as account as retold in the story of the Whisper in Darkness. Um, but that's another thing Lovecraft's really consciously trying to do is tie this story to his other stories, right? To the Call of Cthulhu, to the Necronomicon, to the Whisper in Darkness. Um, yeah, those are the main ones he, he tries to tie it to. Whisper in Darkness is mentioned quite a lot, uh, or referenced quite a lot, as is uh, the Cthulhu um, stuff, but not some of the other stories. Like, we don't get the, the Elder Gods 
um, in this story. We don't get so much. We get a little bit of the Dreamland stuff. I think Kadath is mentioned and the uh, Panoptic manuscripts, which first appear in a Dreamland story, they're mentioned. But it's much more he's trying to build up this kind of cosmic geography. Not dealing. He's not dealing with like Yogg-Sothoth so much or Asathoth. These these gods don't appear in this story very much. But he'll eventually connect these into later stories, I think, to some degree in The Shadow Over Innsmouth and certainly The Witch House. The Witch House story connects some of these more cosmic horror elements with this geography and this history that he's laying out in this book. It's actually quite direct because the elder things show up in The Witch House story. Dreams of the Witch House. Um, but the point of all this is it's kind of like how Wilmarth, when going into Vermont, entered into a primordial world, and you you experience that transition. Here, our characters, and now we're just down to Dyer and Danforth, which simplifies things for the second half of the story, is uh, what he calls an utterly alien world. Quote, and then having gained those last few feet, we did indeed state across the momentous divide and over the unsampled secrets of an elder and utterly alien earth. Um, and that's how chapter four ends. So chapter five then is uh, the voyage. They're still flying their plane into this. And it's, it's another chapter which, a lot, which has a lot of detail of the scenery and the setting, um, which I don't know how much I want to say about. I, I want to highlight more like the psychology of our, of our heroes here. But it basically account, recounts the journey into the city of the Elder Things, right? The discovery that it's not just these mountains, but there's actually an entire city here, uh, the remnants of a civilization. We're not just talking about strange creatures buried in the ice. We're talking about a full-blown civilization that predates humanity. That's clear just from them looking out the window of their, of their airplane, right? Now, they're going to get more details on that. And we'll talk about that in the next episode, I guess. But this is a pretty visually amazing um, scene. And when I was reading this again, I was thinking, you know, there's talk, rumors all the time about adapting this into a movie. I think Guillermo del Toro, who's a producer of The Strain, and, and he, of course, directed Pan's Lambeth. And he's very, very talented and and. He'd be a good guy to do this because he's interested in monsters and and, and and the visuals, right, of horror. But, you know, I don't know where they, that, if that project's moving ahead or not. But, you know, if they did it right, you know, a lot of the, like, screen time would have to be, like, silent, just reflections over landscapes and mountain ranges and things unfolding. I, you know, I don't know if that's practical from a filmmaking perspective but you know you know 20 minutes of just going through these mountains and seeing then revealing that there's a city here and ruins and, and that there's intact buildings and it that could really be an interesting effect i don't know if it'd be very popular to see but it's the it's the sense you it's it's how the the story works it's how the book works it's like we're given you know in chapter five we're given over 10 pages of just them flying um, into these mountains and, and towards the city of the Elder Things. Now, the first thing they notice is they, they see things that look a bit like the Garden of the Gods in Colorado. 
or uh, sandstone formations in the, in the American Southwest, and they seem to be contrasting with them. Um, and that's not new in the story. We've seen other examples of where things they've seen were contrasted with things that exist elsewhere on the Earth. So, you know, the geology is not 100% alien. It's just altogether it makes this alien landscape. But what's the big breakthrough here, I guess, narratively in Chapter 5 is this realization that there's man-made things here. Quote, here on a hellish ancient tableland fully 20,000 feet high and in a climate deadly to habitation since a pre-human age not less than 500,000 years ago, 500, years ago, were stretched nearly to the limits, visions limit a tangle of orderly stone, which only the desperation of mental self-defense could possibly attribute to any but a conscious and artificial cause. End quote. So we have creation. We have uh, something being created. We, for the first time, clearly something, quote-unquote, man-made exists. But it can't be man because it predates human, humanity's um, time on Earth. And then we get an explanation that like, some of the mirages they saw before look a lot like some of what they're seeing here. Some of these ruins and some of these mountains and, and physical features were reflected. So this quote-unquote blasphemous city, right, was something that was appeared before in the mirages before. So they were getting glimpses of it through these mirages, which is why that was important that they spent so much time on uh, mirages in chapter 3. Um, and our narrator, Dyer, starts to think, and I, I wonder, you know, just in the context of the story, he's a geologist, right? So I imagine he experienced these things and then he you know, did research because he talks a lot of detail about, you know, the Migo and Wilmar's discoveries and Necronomicon, Cthulhu cult, all mentioned here um, as something on his mind as experiencing this. But I, I don't know if he could have known that stuff. I, I think he must have researched this stuff later and made these connections. Um, but still, this is what he says. So I, um, all sorts of fantastical phrases sprang to our lips as we looked dizzily down at the unbelievable spectacle i thought again of the eldritch primal mist that had so persistently haunted me since my first sight of the dead antarctic world of the demoniac plateau of lung of the migo or abominable snowmen of the himalayas of the panoptic manuscripts and their pre-human implications of the cthulhu cult of the necronomicon and of the hyperborean legends of formless tasigua and and the worse than formless star spawn associated with that semi-entity but the way this is presented is Dyer must knew this and was thinking about this while in the plane. But I don't know. I find that a bit unbelievable that someone like Dyer would have been that in tune with the folklore. Wilmarth, yes. Wilmarth would have been, a, a, you know, someone who would have known this stuff. And he actually connected. He's, I mean, he's the one who, you know, connects the Migo stories, the abominable snowman stories from Tibet to the experiences of Vermont. But anyway, I guess that's not a big big issue it's just uh it, it works more for me that he goes back home and does some homework and then says oh well, yeah maybe these are all connected but but it seems lovecraft is saturating the myth as much as he can in in moments of the you know in the story so we just get the description of the ruins of the city um you know things in various states of preservation um, but it is ruins the majority of the city is ruins um, and throughout all this is we get this science versus horror, right? Horror saying, go back, don't go there, this is dangerous. And science saying, yes, you must continue to go. It's essential that you continue this investigation. Uh, 
for instance, uh, looking back to our sensations and recalling our dazedness at viewing this monstrous survival from eons, we have thought pre-human. I can only wonder that we persevered the semblance of equilibrium, which we did. Of course, we knew that something, chronology, scientific theory, our own, sub our own consciousness, was woefully awry. Yet we kept enough poise to guide the plane, observe many things quite minutely, and take careful series of photographs which may serve both of us and the world in good stead. So the scientific training wins out at the end, and their curiosity wins out, but there's still the, the horrors in the back of all of this. Now before they find a place to land the city, we get a little bit more reflection on myth as uh, Dyer compares this city of the elder things to other ancient mythical cities such as some are from the dreamlands some are from um some of his other stories some are from uh, real human mythology so you get atlantis lemuria uh, lomar i think that's from the dreamland somewhere brole that's from the call of cthulhu ib in the land of minar that's from the dreamland stuff the nameless city of arabian deserta that's definitely a reference to the nameless city um, a story we talked which really actually, it's, I think I mentioned it a little bit in the last episode, but that's maybe the story that's closest in comparison to At the Mountains of Madness, if you don't include the mound, right? Which, which is involved someone going down into an ancient civilization, seeing it, and then realizing something's still living there, and then fleeing. Um, but anyways, uh, a lot of pondering just or contrasting this city to other mythical cities. Um, now, their, their architecture, there's a lot of detail here in this, um, and this may or may not be of interest to you. Uh, you can take notes on it. You can draw it if you want. I, I think there must be plenty of artwork about this out there. But like the star-shaped uh, furniture and things this is one defining feature of this. The architecture seems to be based on star shape, but there's still this like non-Euclidean kind of superstructure to the whole uh, construction that they see, but but uh, but the star shape comes seems to come up a lot with the furniture or whatever. Anyways, they land the plant plane. It's around twelve thirty p.m., so they they managed you know to get there with still plenty of daylight ahead, and then they venture out by by foot with uh, a bunch of supplies, and finally choose a building to enter. I. Not quite, I guess I missed that, or maybe it's not really clear. Like, they have all these ruins, right? So is this the only one they can go into? The only one with, like, a, a door that they can enter? Um, and everything else is just ruins and useless? You know, why this one? And, and I'm not even clear how, if, they, if they had any evidence that, um, that Gendry, you know, went there. Um, maybe they were following some kind of evidence. But... It's not clear to me how they knew where exactly to go in the city, but they eventually go into one of these um, buildings and it's going to lead them down. Now, when we see the interior decoration of the, of the city of the Elder Things, the most conspicuous element are these murals. So these murals are going to play a major role in much of the rest of the story. In fact, the whole second half of the story is dominated by these murals on the walls. And this allows Lovecraft to tell the story of the civilization. This is very, very important because 
you can't really do it that is tell the story of the civilization in any other way if he really wants us to know i mean he could just describe the the murals but that wouldn't give us all the details he really wants us to understand what's going on in this city of those things and their civilization and their history it's very important to lovecraft that the reader gets that but how do our narrators get to this knowledge you know they wouldn't and th this was the same problem in the nameless city where he just looks at like the wall carvings and the drawings and he's able to figure out the whole history of the civilization and it's kind of laughable if you think about you know even like a work of art made 200 years ago like a painting from 200 years ago might be interpreted by art historians in a dozen different ways right and then in that case we might actually have what the author you know wrote or we know might know who the author is to put some historical context when you get to like ancient stuff like ancient egypt walls of ancient egypt all sorts of debates about what some of these uh, carvings mean or what the statue means or, or why certain styles are popular or whatever and we don't know anything about the artists in those cases we might know about the culture a little bit and we can make an educated guess but people looking at artwork from a totally alien culture from you know millions of years ago they're not going to be able to create construct a narrative all they're going to have is impressions it's, it's so convenient right and this is the problem in this story right is how lovecraft is forced to do this to give his narrators the knowledge that he wants to impart to us of the history of the elder things now i think it's good that it is included because it's some of the most interesting stuff of the story as we'll see in the next episode uh and it really connects to things he's thinking about in terms of his own civilization it doesn't mean it's not like narratively really really awkward and almost comical um but nevertheless, the murals become very, very key to the story. And, and they allow him to basically get an impression of the history, of the culture, even their like biology and their speed and, and how they move. A lot of details that you can't imagine would be that easy to decipher from murals, it seems to me. But, um, but anyways... So almost done with chapter five here. There's not much more to say because it mostly involves going into this, um, into this building, and into these tunnels, um, or into into really the town itself, right? I think it's kind of an interconnected town. Um, but we get uh, a little bit more thought on imagination and science and, and the limits of science and, and mystery here, and I think there's some really good stuff here reflecting on the limits of science you know because part of what lovecraft on, is on lovecraft's mind is how modern science is pushing the boundaries of knowledge and in doing so this kind of entering dangerous territory right um you know this is how call the Cthulhu opens right it's like we shouldn't dig too deep into science we'll be horrified at what we find um you know, here he kind of builds on this theme a little bit, but especially kind of through, you know, the contrast between imagination and science. Quote, Danforth was frankly jumpy and began making some offensively irrelevant speculations about the horror at the camp, which I resented all the more because I could not help sharing certain conclusions forced upon us by many features of this morbid survival from nightmare antiquity. 
The speculations worked on his imagination too, for in one place where a debris-littered alley turned a sharp corner, he insisted he saw faint traces of ground markings, which he did not like, but also where he stopped to listen to a subtle imaginary sound from some undefined point. A muffled musical piping, he said, not unlike that of the wind in the mountain caves, yet somehow disturbingly different. The ceaseless five-pointedness of the surrounding architecture and of the few distinguishable mural arbacus had the dimly similar sinister suggestion we could not escape. Nevertheless, our scientific and adventurous souls were not wholly dead, and we mechanically carried out a program of chipping specimens from all the different rock types represented in the masonry. End quote. So again, science wins out. The imagination takes them to really horrible conclusions, but the science, scientific method wins out. And that's going to be, that's the warning. That's the real warning of the story, in a way. Um, so anyways, this chapter ends with basically them going in deeper into the city. They have a plan to leave, like, paper behind. You know, kind of the breadcrumbs method. And they think, if we run out of paper, we can just carve some stones and knock them on the ground and, and keep our path backwards back that way. Uh, but, but that's that. Um, then we get to chapter six. Chapter six, chapter th six is sort of a transition. We don't quite get the, the, the history yet. That doesn't really happen until chapter seven. Chapter seven, eight, to the end of the story, we start to get the history of the elder things as told through the murals. But the murals are very much part of this section of the story. And we're about halfway through the whole tale at this point. Um, so he kind of skips over much of the wanderings in the city and focuses on uh, the mural carvings and what they do with them. They take photo evidence. That's the key part of it. They're taking... So this is something that the world has access to. And Dyer is using to write his book and, and document and write this report. Right? He's, got, he's got these to reflect on. So maybe that explains how he knows so much. Um, but the way it's in the story, it's presented as he's kind of figuring this out as they're just looking at murals. But it makes more sense if they take detailed records and study them later. But um, again, that's kind of what what I think makes more appealing and realistic story. But it's not quite what Lovecraft does. Lovecraft does sort of have them figuring it out as they go through. Um, but what do we learn from the murals? So we get kind of big questions from the murals. We don't get the details yet. We get big questions in this chapter. Things like how old the city is. Like that's a big thing they get. They they find out. Um, quote, the cyclopean massiveness and gigantism of everything about us became curiously oppressive and there was something vaguely but deeply inhuman in the contours, dimensions, proportions, decorations, and constructional nuances of the blasphemous archaic stonework. We soon realized from what the carvings revealed that the monstrous city was many million years old. Right? We get details about the architecture. Um, we get a, a little bit about their ideas of math, even. Um, suggested that they had a mathematical knowledge and their, their artistic styles and expressions. Uh, in fact, Lovecraft really makes an interesting point here about that, that really reflects something I think he writes about in his letters quite a lot, and that is emotional experience being somewhat connected to, to one's race, right? There's something in art and in the culture that's really only accessible to people of that culture and that civilization. Lovecraft would use the term race. He says here, 
We fell to that besides these recognizable excellences, there were others lurking beyond the reach of our perceptions. Certain touches here and there give vague hints of latent symbols and stimuli, which another mental and emotional background and a fuller or different sensory equipment might have made a profound and poignant significance to us. But anyways, the main discovery they make here um, is the antiquity of the elder things, right? Just how old they are. And it, it's, we're told explicitly that they go back to at least the time of the dinosaurs, coexisting with the dinosaurs. And this then becomes the origins, perhaps, of, of these texts like the Necronomicon and the Panoptic Manuscripts, right? That when they hinted at ancient civilizations, this was the one that they were hinting at, right? Um, now, the nameless city doesn't seem to be, it seems to be a different type of society, right? So to put all this together, Lovecraft creates a, a broader history that involves other races, in, you know, on Earth, not just the Elder Things and the Shoggoths. You know, there's the whole Cthulhu uh, stuff is also added, but that gets a little bit later. Um, anyway, I mean, that's about it in Chapter 6. Chapter 6 uh, is basically about the murals and the method, I guess, the method by which we're to believe that they're able to get the story. Um, in fact, we get their method. Um, Naturally, no one set of carvings, this is Lovecraft's work, no one set of carvings which we encounter told more than a fraction of any connected story, nor did we even begin to come up with the various stages of the story in their proper order. Some of the vast rooms were independent units as far as their designs were concerned, while in the other cases, a continuous chronicle would be carried through a series of rooms and corridors. End quote. So it, there's a whole paragraph here just on the method by which Dyer and Danforth are able to piece together a story from these murals. And... Again, I don't buy it. I just think this would be... First, the art would be so foreign, to take that earlier point, that, you know, it's... Think of just how, like, Europeans misinterpret even just, like, Native American art or African pre-colonial art and just totally misinterpret what's it about. What, what's, it, what's it about? Um, when they don't actually engage with the culture and understand it in that cultural context. Um, taking something this alien... I, I just don't find it very believable that they would have made much sense of these these things as systematically as they did. Um, but you got to suspend your disbelief and say, oh, they're scientists and they're systematic and they got they, they take the time to do it. Um, but anyways, that's it. That's chapter uh, six. So we're over halfway through the story, actually. Um, it is that first half is a real drag in a way. It, it sort of picks up a little bit in seven eight nine and and the last three chapters are kind of the much more action climax of this of the tale um but anyways in the next episode i'll look at chapters uh, seven eight nine of at the mountains of madness in the meantime if you have anything you want to add about this story um let me know i think the key features are things like um, this imagination versus science or horror and science and the conflict between them I think that's the heart of what's going on here. Also, just the traveling, once again, like the travel of Wilmarth into Vermont, the traveling into a primordial world is, is very well done. And again, if, I think if this was to be adapted into a film, much of the film would have to really exploit that experience and make that visible you know, on the big screen. But we'll see. We'll see if this ever gets made into a big budget movie. You know, there was... What? I guess I can give a little bit of a side here. I got a few minutes. You know, I've been thinking about 
the discussion about copyright. Um, and, and one of the big arguments against reducing copyright is, is to maybe like 30 years. That's what original copyright was, right? In, the, in 1790, 28 years, whatever. To go back to something like that, one of the arguments against it is then big corporations like Disney would just wait for 30 years and then take up these IPs for free and, and exploit all these um, works by, by these artists and, and writers. And I find that plausible and, and an interesting argument. But, you know, look what's been done with Lovecraft. In turn. He's been public domain for a long time and, and you don't see these adaptations um, being used. Maybe it's the nature of the work. Um, but I think that's true. Or Jack London. How many Jack London works are, are being adapted? You know, some are, but most Jack London works are kind of untouched by this. So just something being in the public domain doesn't mean it, it gets uh, the Hollywood treatment um, that, it, that, it, that they might deserve. Anyways, I still would like to see it. I'd be really excited to see this one. Even though this is my favorite story, I think this is the one I would most like to see on film. All right, that's it. That's it for now. Um, I'll, I'll make a, take a stab at chapters 7, 8, 9 tomorrow. Uh, try to keep the pace on this and get through this, this lengthy story and get to the, the later stories, which kind of excite me more. And the next two in particular. And we're going to get back to revision soon, which is also really exciting. The Mound, Curse of Yig, uh, some great stuff in the, in the revisions coming up too. So anyways... That's it for now. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com if you want to talk, if you have any thoughts for me about anything I've mentioned here. Um, yeah, let, let me know. Um, I will see you next time. Please don't let me lose my rightful mind. Sharp in two, he'll think the word.